Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, I'm Alana Schreiber, and I'm a producer for KUNC's Colorado Edition. We work to bring you authentic conversations and stories to deepen your understanding of life in northern Colorado. And our show, along with the rest of KUNC's programming, is available to everyone in the community free of charge because we are a nonprofit public radio station. And we want to keep it that way, but we need your help. If you value the news and stories Colorado Edition brings, you can support us by becoming a member or making a donation. If you join as a sustaining member for just $12 a month, you'll receive a T-shirt commemorating 50 years of NPR on KUNC. You can also donate at KUNC.org or by calling 800-443-5862. Now, here's today's show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore how the Americans with Disabilities Act has shaped access to the great outdoors. This is not a place you go on a separate trail if you have a disability. You are side by side with your family and friends, having the same experience. And we hear how residents of one Colorado mountain community are finding their own unique way of recovering after a devastating wildfire. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Throughout the pandemic, outdoor recreation has emerged as critically important to our state's economic recovery. State and national parks here are reporting record levels of visitors, and businesses that sell outdoor gear have gotten a shot in the arm thanks to all the extra interest. And even before the pandemic, the outdoor recreation industry had been growing a lot over the past few years. A recent report from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis shows the outdoor recreation economy in the U.S. is bigger than ever before. But as important as outdoor recreation is to the overall economy, not everyone is a part of this boom due to accessibility issues. These issues can make it difficult, sometimes impossible, for people with certain disabilities to access recreation hotspots. But it's also more than that. Attitudes surrounding access and who should be able to be a part of outdoor recreation have limited what opportunities are reasonably available to people who have a disability. Since 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act has sought to address these issues. The landmark civil rights legislation kicked off a new era of accessibility and has shaped the way our country looks, weaving accessibility standards into everything from sidewalks to door frames. But outdoor recreation wasn't an early focus of the ADA, and that's meant progress in this area has been a bit slow. In a few minutes, we'll head up to Park County to visit a camp that's been focused on accessibility in nature since the mid-1980s. But first, for more on the Americans with Disabilities Act and how it's shaped outdoor places over the last 31 years, we're joined by Emily Schumann, director of the Rocky Mountain ADA Center. That's one of 10 regional centers across the U.S. that provide information, guidance, and training on the ADA. She spoke with Colorado Edition's Henry Zimmerman. Can you give us an idea across the Rocky Mountain region what accessibility looks like in general? We're sitting at about 20% of Coloradans have disabilities, somewhere between 20 and 21%, we think, which is about one in five people. That includes all kinds of disabilities. So everything from what we call obvious disabilities, things like being in a wheelchair or 
using some other sort of mobility device or perhaps using a seeing eye dog for, for a person who's blind, but then also invisible disabilities or non-obvious disabilities. So that would be the majority. Um, and so that could be, you know, really anything from cognitive disabilities, mental illnesses, lots of other types of conditions um, that wouldn't be obvious to the naked eye. And when we talk about, you know, accessibility within the region, all of those different types of disabilities are going to have different accessibility needs. So whether that's a physical barrier, a physical access barrier, like being able to get your wheelchair into a building, or um, it might be an attitudinal barrier that a person faces. So what kind of stereotypes um, are faced, do they face because of their disability or what are the attitudes of other people toward them? So, you know, accessibility is it's a really broad topic and it's kind of individualized, right? Every single person is going to need something a little bit different than the next person. How has our general view of accessibility changed since the ADA was signed into law? Hmm, that is a good question. You know, I think you know, I think we used to view accessibility as, you know, simply removing those physical barriers, making sure that there are curb ramps and elevators and, you know, that people in wheelchairs can get around, you know, that there are accessible parking spaces, things like that. Now, when we talk about accessibility, we're talking about attitudes as well. And we're also talking about alternatives that are not always structural in nature. You know, we can provide accessibility sometimes without having to redesign a building or tear out a sidewalk. There's opportunities to innovate with accessibility, opportunities to find new ways of doing things. And often when we find new ways of doing things for people with disabilities, a lot of times that provides more opportunities and, and better access for, for non-disabled folks as well. So I would definitely say that we're shifting from, you know, a, such an intense focus on, on physical access to some of those more innovative approaches to accessibility. Well, how does the ADA, I guess, interact with things like hiking or trails or, or that kind of infrastructure, as opposed to, say, like new construction development or something like that? The ADA does contain some pretty specific regulations for those things. Physical spaces are governed by something called the 2010 ADA Standards for Accessible Design, which applies to, like what you were talking about, new constructions and major alterations of facilities. But the 2010 standards actually also contain a whole chapter on recreational facilities, including some of those outdoor recreation spaces. So the ADA does have some specific guidelines on, on the accessibility of those things. Also, you know, many of the outdoor recreation, you know, parks and trails, things like that are managed and owned by state and local governments, which would be covered under Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And under Title II, state and local governments have to provide what's called program access. If you see your state parks as a program, which um, that's how that would be defined under the ADA, then when viewed in their entirety, they have to be accessible for people to enjoy and benefit from that. What does the future of accessibility look like to you? I think the future of accessibility is really going to be making sure that everybody has equal access to digital spaces and online spaces. We also need to continue to do work uh, tackling those attitudinal barriers that face people with disabilities. 
making sure that microaggressions, implicit bias, you know, those types of unintentional attitudinal discrimination um, doesn't occur. And, you know, I think obviously the first steps is education, awareness, and then, um, like I said, exposure and integration with people who are different from one another. That's always going to be the best way to tackle those attitudinal barriers. Emily Schumann is the director of the Rocky Mountain ADA Center. Emily, thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. As we heard, we've come a long way since the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, but there are still issues to overcome with attitudes and physical spaces. And while the list of places offering unfettered or even enhanced outdoor accessibility isn't long, it does include a hidden gem in the mountains near Kenosha Pass in Park County, Colorado, a 20-acre camp called Wilderness on Wheels, where folks have been working to address accessibility issues since the mid-1980s. When you pass through the front gate at WOW, you're greeted by a large wooden building called the Octagon that houses offices, a gift shop, and the apartment where the caretakers live, Beth and Justin Bellamy, and their four-year-old son, Jakai. We live here 24-7, what, nine months out of the year, and uh, take care of our 20-plus acre property here. There aren't many places that people can go and um, be outside in nature at their own pace, at their own speed, and um, just spend quiet time out here without any kind of adrenaline rush or without um, worrying about, do I need someone to help carry me um, over this rock? Can, will my wheelchair go through here? So um, this is just, it's a gem. The Bellamy's, who took over operations this past winter, are well-equipped to address challenges like these. Beth's background is in special education and Justin's is in geology, and their son often uses a wheelchair. So it was a natural fit. And science will prove, right, like the goodness of being in nature and all of that. But I also think what's really important here is that it's about like inclusion. That's Allison Kessler. She's president of the Foundation for Wilderness on Wheels. So this is not a place like you go on a separate trail if you have a disability. You are side by side with your family and friends having the same experience. And that's the kind of consideration at the foundation of pretty much everything here, from campsites with elevated tent platforms to the camp's crown jewel, a mile-long boardwalk trail that makes its way up the mountain. And um, it's accessible for people with wheelchairs, walkers, scooters, whatever they might need to help them um, get up into nature. A lot of curves up the hike, you know, not just a steep, <laughs> steep uh, one one climb. But we see we see people getting a great workout. It's still it's yeah. still plenty of a good workout For getting sure. up there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Should we get a little workout? Yeah. There? yeah. Sure. <laughs> the trail was designed with access at the forefront, something that is important to Kessler, who got involved not long after she was paralyzed seven years ago. My paralysis was temporary, but I was in a wheelchair for seven months, and I was in the hospital that whole time looking at the mountains, wondering if I'm ever going to get back there. So when I got out, and I learned to walk again, and um, today I just walk with assistive AFOs, um, I knew I have job satisfaction. I work in tech, and that's really interesting in other ways, but I also wanted to get involved in this community. So. When you finally were able to go for the first time, what did that feel like for you to be able to get back at it? Yeah, emotional relief. I felt like myself again. 
um, just really, really grateful that a place like this exists, and I want to do everything I can to make sure it continues to. Beth, Allison, Jakai, and I hike over toward the fishing pond, where some visitors fish and others ponder their thoughts in the cool mountain air. I feel very safe letting my four-year-old take off and go on this boardwalk because it's just, it's safe. It's, yeah. um, it's accessible and it's safe. Hey, Jakai, come show Mr. Henry the pavilion down here. That's where you're going, though. Don't crash. Places like WOW are rare in part due to long-held negative perspectives towards people with disabilities in this country. It wasn't until 1990 that the U.S. effectively codified the rights of the country's largest minority group. And though that law provides guidance on making places like these more accessible, that wasn't always the case. Camping was not one of the biggies with the ADA. Barbara Kramer and her husband Bill were the caretakers of WOW for about 20 years before passing the torch to the Bellamy's. Barb's been using a wheelchair for more than 70 years after contracting polio at age 8, and she's seen attitudes towards accessibility change in her lifetime, in part because of her advocacy. Because it was so in my DNA to promote places and things for people with disabilities, it was the perfect place for Bill and I to end up. And though she wasn't there in the mid-1980s when Wilderness on Wheels started to take shape, she brought her experiences with outdoor recreation with her, informing what the place could become. Coming from a person with a disabilities perspective, I think that really helped us to get WOW growing more than it had been, you know, the first 15 years. Now, in its 35th year, Wilderness on Wheels has become a rare example of how to offer outdoor recreation experiences to all and how important that access to nature really is. Coming out of the pandemic, the Bellamy's and the board at WOW still have their work cut out for them. They're steadily opening up more and more of the camp for visitors, working on regular repairs with groups of volunteers, and of course, trying to make this place a little less rare. I'm hoping that we're here for 20 years, you know, and our son will grow up here and then be like, yeah, I grew up at Wilderness on Meals and, you know, and he'll come back to visit us and we'll be old and <laughs> maybe he'll take over one day or something. But yeah, yeah it's, it's really great to be out here. That story was reported and produced by Henry Zimmerman. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Tens of millions of dollars in state and federal money is finally reaching Grand Lake as the mountain community rebuilds after last year's deadly fire season. Nearly a year after the East Troublesome fire devastated the area, the town is again welcoming tourists. But as KUNC's Scott Franz reported over the summer, many residents are still traumatized and they're banding together to find their own ways of recovering. Nine months have passed since the East Troublesome Fire ripped through the Grand Lake area, destroying more than 300 homes. Many are hesitant to talk to me about their losses. And then I meet Bill Bruton. Yesterday I was up there hiking in the park and it's, uh, it's amazing. The longtime resident is leading a historical tour for a small group of visitors. During a short break, he tells me how the fire has changed areas inside Rocky Mountain National Park. The vistas are greater than they ever were because all there are are black pecker poles sticking up, but you can see ridges that I didn't know where they were because it was always green. But there's also signs of trouble from the state's second largest wildfire. The creeks are running black now sometimes after the rain. Um, people are a little nervous. 
Bruton did not suffer any personal losses during the fire, but to better understand how it impacted those who did, he suggests I stop by a newly opened museum. It's run by Emily Hagen, who leads Grand Lake's Chamber of Commerce. That is a piece of metal roofing material recovered from a home in Sun Valley Ranch. Hagen shows me a range of charred artifacts recovered from burned homes, including jewelry and other family heirlooms. And there's lots of photos. You can really see the intensity in some of these images. They're not easy to look at. But this wasn't an easy situation. There's not a way to make this fire right. Which got me wondering, why open an exhibit revisiting the town's darkest day, and so soon after it happened? It can be really difficult for someone who lost everything to discuss it over and over and over again. So this project started as an early version for me, as the chamber director, to support my businesses by giving them a place to send their guests who have questions so that they maybe get a break from talking about the fire. Some days they can, some days they can't. As we're looking around, Andy Pitcher arrives with another artifact for the growing display. It's a piece of burned tree bark from her ranch that was destroyed. She chokes up when she spots a large bowl of candy that pays tribute to Mary Lynn Heilman, a friend and neighbor who died in the fire along with her husband, Lyle. Mary Lynn had 40 bowls of candy in her house all the time. There'll always be candy in this bowl. But it's an honor for us who lost everything to have people come and witness it. Just witness it. Just sit there with us and watch it. And that's when she invites me out to a family member's cabin on the outskirts of town to tell me more about her recovery from the fire. On my drive over, I can see other signs that things are starting to mend. There are these fields of brilliant purple lupine flowers, and they're growing right up to the charred earth. Hey, good to see you again. When I arrive, I can see just how close the cabin came to being consumed by flames that ripped through the trees just yards away. It may not look like the Ritz-Carlton, but right now, it's the Ritz-Carlton. Come in, have some lunch. Should I take my shoes off? I, you know, I kick them off right here. Okay. Um, I think you're probably pretty good. We are not fancy here in Grand Lake. Andy Pitcher says she feels more comfortable here, surrounded by charred earth, than she does in town. That's because this area has already been burned. She lost a lot, but she also gives thanks for what she does have. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful unto thee for our many blessings for this place, for what was preserved in the fire. We're grateful for the attention and the witnessing of the fire and grateful for this food and, and that, we have a, that we have a roof over our head at this time. We ask that that would bless us, bless our loved ones, bless the food so it'll strengthen us and bless our land to come back and us to stay committed to it. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. After a meal of baked chicken, we drive down the road to what's left of her home. She calls it the black. This is the end of the county route here. And the gate, which must remain locked, sadly, is the gate to the vortex of the troublesome. And um, leads to the resting place of my loved ones, where they'll always be. And, it, and it's kind of oddly hallowed ground now. What are we walking on here? Well, that was the kitchen. <laughs> that was the double kitchen. There was the dance hall. There was, <laughs> I'll send you photos. 
This was the barn, quote unquote, the barn. All that remains is melted glass and a pair of cheap camping chairs that Pitcher has set up in an area she jokingly calls her office. Walmart. But among all this rubble, she sees opportunity. Everything's gone, the foundation's gone. But I think about, um, I think my septic system is still around. She thinks it could be the perfect place to build a tiny new home. Before we leave, I asked what she thought of the state's response to wildfires. There's not a, enough legislation to stop it. We thought about abatement. I mean, you know, we always had a plan in terms of clear the trees 300 feet from your building or, or how do we prevent, how do we prevent. The reality is we now need to come around to once cataclysm happens, geocataclysm happens to you, this is how you go on afterwards. Because we knew the fire was coming for 20 years. Nobody told me, nobody gave me a game book on how to go forward afterwards. But life in Grand Lake is moving ahead. A dozen or so tourists are looking at artifacts and asking questions about the fire back at the new East Troublesome exhibit. There's definitely days that are harder than others. Emily Hagen says the community is resilient, and there are always reminders of the fire to deal with. For example, personally, I wasn't prepared for when the snow melt, when the snow melt happened, how dark the ground was. You know, having that layer of white really kind of softened the blow. Things like that occasionally happen. And they, it's kind of like a scab comes off your wound and you feel it for a few days and then it kind of heals back over and you just keep moving forward. All in all, we're doing really well. You know, we're a tough community that knows how to circle up around each other and take care of each other. I'm Scott Franz in Grand Lake. You can go deeper with this story and see photos from the exhibit at our website, KUNC.org. Fifty-two eighty magazine, based in Denver, is known for its coverage of Colorado's culture and food scene. For the first time, an Asian-American woman is at the helm of the magazine's dining coverage. Back in May, Colorado Editions' Tess Novotny spoke with Patricia Kalthamrong about her role as food editor at 5280 and how her love for food has shaped her personal life and career. She began by sharing how she first got into food journalism. Well, I wanted to be a writer and a journalist since high school, and I went to journalism school at CU Boulder, but... I didn't really start writing about Colorado when I worked at a travel marketing company that produced Colorado Tourism's vacation guides and website. During that time, I also realized how much I wanted to share stories about my family, particularly the food that my, my mother made that I loved so much. So I started a little food blog featuring recipes and the stories behind them, which led me to 5280. You recently wrote a lovely essay introducing yourself as 5280's new food editor, and in it you trace the origins of your love for food back to your family. You said, I inherited my big appetite from my parents, both of whom moved to Colorado from Bangkok, Thailand in the early 1980s. What did food mean to you and your family growing up? Food was always a huge part of my life because my parents who are from Bangkok, like you said, had a gas station. They recently retired, but they had the gas station for almost 40 years. They worked 24 seven. So mealtime was 
one of the only times we could be together and sharing food around the table was ultimately how you express love. Do you have a favorite dish that your family prepared? Oh my gosh, I have so many, but two of my favorites. My mom makes this pork belly stew um, that's braised pretty much all day in the crock pot and it's spiced with star anise brown sugar and cilantro stems so good it leaves this like fatty glossy sheen on your lips when you eat it and you eat it with rice that is one of my all-time favorites it's like a warm hug when you eat it and then I also love every year during holidays we didn't do it this year because of covid but we always do a huge hot pot meal where we all gather around the table and there's a huge cauldron of boiling broth and you just dip different ingredients in it and mom always makes this really delicious sweet sour spicy dipping sauce how did eating food so far away from thailand help you stay connected to your family's culture and heritage well, like a lot of kids who grew who grow up in immigrant families, I think you just kind of want to fit in and not seem different. And I grew up in Arvada, so there weren't a lot of Asian students at my school. So I, I wanted to seem as American as possible. And to me, that meant eating as many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, pizza and cheeseburgers And I I made my mom buy them and I feel terrible. And, you know, she was, she understood, but in the end, I always came home and we always ate around the dinner table what they ate growing up in Bangkok. And it, it always brought me home. What kind of change would you want to see both at 5280 and just in, in food writing and dining coverage in general? At 5280, We've always strived to make our coverage as inclusive as possible, but like any publication, there's always, always room for growth. And I hope that my roots, my life experience and perspective will help bring more voices into the pages of the magazine and onto 5280.com, like I said, and help us produce more stories that showcase the beauty of our differences because the stories I love writing and editing the most are the ones that showcase how food unites us. Like I realized growing up that my family's dishes could connect me with others and connect me with my family. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And I think, I hope we can get more coverage that's inclusive. So it gives people opportunities, our readers to understand and appreciate the cultures of other Coloradans. Patricia Kalthamrong is the new food editor for 5280 Magazine in Denver. Patricia, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.